Kingdom. This is Judley Wheels Rothstein, straight from the Tar Heel State of North Carolina, coming at you live for our eighth episode of the second season of Hold the Fort. We are wishing everyone a happy and healthy holiday weekend. Well, who am I kidding? We know the breakdown. I'm wishing all of our former campers a shag Pesach Samash and all of our former counselors a happy Easter. Although there is one exception, and that is my podcast partner in crime. He's the ex-camper who would think Pesach is an article of clothing in which you hide your money after getting paid. A guy who always wonders, what's the hurry for everyone during Rosh Hashanah? And a goyim who thinks Purim sounds like a good idea when you have a pitcher of beer from the P-Hop. It's the man who would never pass over an opportunity to take a swig from Elijah's glass of wine, my Easter-loving brother from another egg-hunt-hiding mother, Stuart Stewdog Vitter. Doggy, doggy, doggy. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Doggy, doggy, doggy. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Doggy. Ruff. Doggy. Ruff. Doggy, doggy, doggy. Ruff, ruff, ruff. Stewdog, tell us how you are doing and tell us this. How is it that you get a magical six-foot bunny who hides eggs and gives you delicious chocolate, and we get extremely long dinners with shiroset and shank bones and discussion of plagues. Where is the equity there? Everything is fine. Uh, we're on a short break this year, uh, making up days lost from Ida. And uh, the equity would be yesterday on Good Friday. You can only have one big meal. So down here in South Louisiana, we really have to you know, take it easy now with, you know, 10, 15 pounds of crawfish. <laughs> so there is no equity. But, um, you know, for our next guest, you know, one of the popular uh, answers to a question of the favorite view uh, that people have said, this guy got to spend many a moons there in that popular view there in the cove. That is right. Studog, our next guest breathed air into erudition. He punched a fist into sophistication. And during his great 11 summer run from 1987 to 1997, he would never put a ban on urbanity. Suffice it to say, this next guest may have been the one and only counselor during that time period who could have spelled those three words, given you the language of origin, and used them properly in a sentence. And now, if the language of origin was the Queen's English, you can be damn sure that he would remind you of that fact. There are a ton of great counselors from across the pond, but this next guest stood out to me during my adolescent years and continued to do so into my adult years as a counselor at Wenaki. I can vividly remember coming home to New Jersey and quizzing my friends on things I learned from our guest. I would ask, what's a torch? What's a water bubbler? What's a boot? And then laugh as they had no idea that those were names for a flashlight, the water fountain, and the trunk of a car. I'm pretty sure I learned about Graham Gooch and his cricket exploits from our guest. Lastly, after learning from him the British version of Our Middle Finger, which was more like the American hand signal for peace, 
I was more than happy to use it with impunity when I returned home. Armed with all of this fun knowledge, who wouldn't want to spend extra time with this memorable counselor, group leader, and row leader? For most of us during the late 80s and early 90s, sailing trips were just an excuse to hang out with this Brit with wit, a limey, with whom you could have a good timey. And trust me, I attribute my proper usage of who versus whom to my summer spent with this educator, great counselor, and amazing man. So without any further ado, I give our listeners Sir Andrew Barrow. Andrew, can you give us your best rendition of Oogie da Bonga? Oogie da Bonga, Iggy da Biggie Wiggie, Ethel da Deffel Wevel. Wah! Wah! <laughs> we knock it, we knock it, we knock it. Oh, I love it. And, you know, you're, 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 Robert Frost, wasn't it? that's right. Your British accent is spot on too, by the way, Andrew. It's amazing. You've been working on that. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us how you have been doing and what you have been up to since we last saw you at Camp Winocchi? Well, the last time I was at uh, Winocchi was actually in, I think, 2014. So uh, comparatively recently. Um, and I'm still teaching at the same school. Um, I'm the senior master there. I ran a boarding house there. For 13 years um and uh yeah very much in the same same sort of place really loving it that's great well we always like to start off with the origin story and we've learned so much over the years um you know we obviously knew all of our guests as counselors but we never really knew how you ended up at winaki for your first summer so what is the story behind that in my case it was just sheer luck really um I saw a notice uh, back in the days when you had notice boards um, in my college, which was asking for people to go and spend a summer in America um, teaching American kids. And I went through an organization called BUNAC, which was an organization I later worked for and interviewed, um, and went through a memorable interview um, in Exeter, which was my local town. Mm. Um, and then uh, before I knew it, the beginning of the summer, um, long flight over the Atlantic, slightly um, trepidatious in the face of um, the U.S. immigration. Um, then a YMCA in a very dodgy part of New York. Um, they told us very clearly, do not turn left when you get out. go out of the door because you won't come back if you do. Um, then there was the first um, experience of a, an American bus. Now, I'd seen how far Winorky was from New York because I looked it up on a map, mm. um, and it was about an inch, which in England would be a good hour's drive. Um, it wasn't, as it turns out. <laughs> um, then we got up to Centre Harbour on that first experience of a, a school bus. How you get, how you're allowed to use those sorts of buses without getting done for child abuse is completely beyond me. Um, and then arrived late at night into the uh, middle centre of campus, quite excited, a little bit lost, um, and dying to see the lake, which of course you couldn't see because it was night time. And uh, that was the beginning of the first summer. Uh, next day we had the orientation um, that was pretty memorable, um, and then the summer began. And okay, so that's 1987, correct? Yeah, it and, was either 86 or 87. I can't really remember to be honest. With you. Yeah, and that was your first time um, in America in your life to that point, correct? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yeah. never been there before. So before we get to to Stu's next question, you know, I'm I'm just. Curious about what that first summer, if you were you junior row, senior row, kind of what were some of your responsibilities and what were some of your kind of impressions of that of that first summer? They're very powerful ones, actually. Um, I was in bunk 14, which is unsurprisingly my favorite favorite sort of area of camp. <laughs> 
um, but more of that later on, no doubt. Um, and um, I was teaching sailing. Um, in fact, I was running the sailing program amazingly and um, set up a little, um, little little program to help teach the kids, you know, with sort of awards and things like that. Um, and uh, I was a bunk counsellor, um, not a very good one to start off with, and I learned a huge amount as that summer went on. Um, lessons that have stood me in good stead for the rest of my life, actually. Hmm. So, Andy, you know, you get there in 87, they send you down to bunk 14, which 13, 14 almost faces due east, so you get the, the early morning sun. But after or during and so forth that summer, when did you know that Winocchi was going to be a huge part of your life? And how did you tailor your life back home in England to be able to return summer after summer? Well, it must have been a couple of weeks in that I knew that it was somewhere that was going to be really special and quite significant for me. Um, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I loved sailing and I was being paid to sail. You know, what's <laughs> not to like about that? I had a great bunk. Um, big characters, Jeremy Sunshine, Tommy Zarella, Greg Drenix, you people like that. Um, and watching those kids develop and grow and watching them come together as a bunk um, convinced me that actually I really wanted to come back, uh, you know, the next year. Uh, and added to that, you had the, the beauty of the place. Um, you know, you said that uh, most people, when, when they are asked, you know, what's their favourite place in camp, they say, you know, bunk 16, 14, 15, 16, around that sort of area. But the key is, I think, if you, if you push through the bushes, um, just behind the fire circle, the soft fire circle, there's a rock um, that's just out of sight. You wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily know it's there. And if you sit on that rock, you can see everything. It's a complete 180-degree view. Okay. Of the line of the rocks that goes out to the island. And that really right. is the most beautiful place in camp. Um, I just loved it there. Um, you know, there were things I'd never seen before in England. Um, I'd never seen the Milky Way, for example, mm. um, because we've got like with like, small island and all that. There are very few places that you can actually see the Milky Way, but you can, or you could then, in Winorki. They put up a whole load of lights now, which has changed it. Um, and uh, I mean, I remember really clearly one uh, one night we were there. There was a complete lunar eclipse, huh. um, and we got the kids out in the middle of the night. And I remember the docks were absolutely crammed with kids lying on their backs on their comforters and looking up into the sky. And as the lunar eclipse came across, um, of course, the stars came out and you could see the, the whole sort of magnificence of the Milky Way. And it was an experience I would never forget. And I'm sure the children who experienced it that night would never forget it. And I saw sort of wildlife I'd never seen before, you know, porcupines, bears, raccoons, skunk. Um, and, uh, oh yeah, what were those little, uh, those little um, chipmunks, those things? Yeah. Uh, remember that? I had a call from the bunk one day when the kid said, uh, <laughs> Andrew, 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 um, yeah, what's the problem? He said, we've got a swimming turd. And <laughs> so I went back and said, do you remember those bathrooms at the back of those bunks with those doors that slammed and wake you up in the middle of the night? Um, yeah. And sure enough, in the uh, toilet bowl there was a little swimming turd, um, <laughs> but it wasn't, it was chipmunk that had fallen in. And, uh, <laughs> It, that's exactly what it looked like. Um, and kids get, uh, I said, hey, it's a chipmunk. And kids go, oh, cool, let's flash it. No, no, it's not, that's not going. Uh, so we got this thing out, this bedraggled chipmunk out on the end of a broomstick and stuck it on the root of a tree and sort of shook itself off, looked confused, and disappeared off into the undergrowth. Um, and then, so that was my first couple of years, um, with the years I was at university, so I could come out quite easily. Okay. And then after that, I worked for Procter & Gamble um, in London. It was a lot harder because I only got four weeks 
um, or for year, you know, holiday. So I used to use three of those weeks to come back to uh, camp in the summer, um, which meant a very truncated ex experience. And John was always really kind and bothered to find me a, a job that I could do when I arrived. And so I tend to just arrive in camp and pick up the slack for those years, you know, if someone had quit or whatever. And then I went off to get my teacher's qualification, and that gave me another summer, summer at camp, mm. years late. And then I started teaching myself. And um, our school year runs slightly later than yours, so we finished in July. So it was always part summers, pretty much, from then on. And uh, once again, John just found me, um, you know, roles that I could fulfill, and I got to do my sailing, and it was a very, very happy time. Wow. It's interesting. My brother worked there for a couple of years as well. He was a, um, uh, Julian, he was a um, waiter on the mainland for a year and then uh, went off to uh, um, be a counsellor in one of the, the very junior bunks, as I recall. Oh, I never knew that. That what, yeah. what Around what years was that? Um, he's three years younger than I, so I would say if I was there in 87, it must have been the early 90s, I would say, I guess. Oh, that's great. Now, it's interesting, Andrew. I, mean, I remember specifically when we had AC on and he was talking about a similar experience in the bunk that first summer. And, and I think that that would probably be a, a pretty unifying experience for a lot of the counselors who put in the great number of years is sort of seeing the magic happen in the bunks and the maturation of the kids and those relationship forms as being a real um, kind of pull factor in making sure that counselors would return summer after summer. So it's you know, interesting to hear you talk about this sort of the, the same thing. Yeah, it was wonderful because, you know, the kids cried when they first arrived because, um, you know, some of them were away from home for the first time and some of them a bit confused, some of them a bit homesick, all that sort of thing. Um, and then gradually that sort of tended to morph into sort of me and my area. Um, and then gradually as the summer went on, the my become became ours and the I became we. Mm. Um, and they formed friendships that for them, um, I suspect, are equally as strong and as lifelong as the... Um, friendships that the counsellors have experienced over the years. Yeah. And, they, and the funny thing is, is they cry when they arrived and they cried when they left because <laughs> they were leaving their friends for, uh, you know, 11 months. Yeah. yeah for, two, for two different reasons. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, one, they were homesick when they arrived. They were campsick when they left. Yeah. And now you had mentioned Bunak. And because obviously, you know, one of the one of the treats for me over the years into the 2000s and 2010s was, you know, getting to see you uh, intermittently just talk a little bit about, you know, what, what your involvement was with Bunak and how that kept you involved, uh, you know, even tangentially with Winaki and then even some of your other experiences seeing other camps during that time period. It was fascinating. I had an extraordinarily privileged job. Um, I was would interview university um, undergraduates for, you know, places as counsellors. And, I mean, fundamentally, you were looking to see, one, did they know about their skill, whatever that was? Two, did they have experience with kids? And three was the sort of X factor, which is, you know, if they ended up as your bunkmate, would you go, oh, really? Or would you go, <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Um, and those were the sort of three tests that I had in the back of my mind. Now, part of that was that Bunak sent us out in the summer and they gave us a car, a flight, a car, um, and expenses. And what we had to do was to drive around various camps and meet the people that Bunak as a whole had placed and just check their summers were going okay, see how they were, all that sort of thing. And it was fantastic. It was a two-week road trip over some of the most beautiful parts of the U.S., mm. everywhere from Texas uh, through to, obviously, most of the camps were in the Northeast, but uh, I did some in the Deep South. I even went down as far as South Carolina once, 
Um, never made it to Louisiana. There weren't any. <laughs> I ever got sent down there, I'm afraid. That's you. Um, not, a, um, not a lot of Jewish summer camps in Louisiana, Andrew? I'm shocked. No, there weren't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a one. <laughs> but camps come in all sorts of shapes and sizes because you get YMCA camps, you know, you get Christian camps, you get all sorts. Um, and I saw some amazing ones. I mean, uh, Winorki had something special, I felt. Um, but, I mean, there was one, the one, one uh, in Texas, and their strap line was where boys become men. <laughs> and uh, they had an explosives program, and um, they absolutely straight up they did. And they took me to see it. I said, I've got to see this. And there was this field which looked like, uh, you know, the Somme in World War One, like that, that on a bad day. Um, essentially, these kids were setting off sticks of explosive and blowing bits of this uh, field up. Um, and they had this thing called a blob. Um, have you, have you, either of you guys ever come across the blob? Is that a waterfront yeah. thing or something on, on dry yeah. land? I, I'm, be, I'm sure it'd be illegal in New Hampshire, but um, at the, this was a, imagine a sort of inflatable sausage that is about um, probably 20 feet in diameter and then it's probably about 30 feet long. And what they would do is they'd moor it under a diving board, a very high diving board, and then one of the kids would scoot up the diving board and then he jumped the diving board onto this enormous airbag. And I thought, well, that's, you know, it's pretty lame. I can't really see the point in that. And then, then I watched a bit longer and the kid would scoot along to the end of the airbag away from the diving board. And then another kid would do the same thing. And of course the compression of the air would fire the first kid up into the air. And, you know, they'd get a good 10 feet of air and then fire them into the lake. Um, and I, I thought the zip line was pretty cool, but this was absolutely extraordinary. But what was fascinating about the physics of the whole thing is if you, and they had this notice that says no double blobbing. And the double blob was when you got two, how should I put it, um, two children be built for endurance rather than speed. <laughs> if you had two of those and you had a little light kid, yeah. and a little light kid was on the fire, you could send that kid some distance. And uh, so it was, it was extraordinary. I mean, how they didn't kill themselves doing it, I don't know. Well. And they obviously never, never heard of health and safety down there. Where they had to make their beds when they arrived. And yeah. um, when I say make the beds, I mean make their beds. Um, they got hammer, wood, nails. Wow. That was just an extraordinary range of camps. It was fascinating to see. But Winorki always had something to me that was, you know, because I met the counselors, I saw how they were going and that sort of thing. I had sort of, you know, chats with them about how they were finding life. But you didn't get that sort of unity and sort of sense of tightness that you got in the Winorki mm. uh, body counselors. And I think that's one of the things that made Winorki so very special. Yeah. So let's, yeah, let's, let's focus on that a little bit uh, as far as um, your, your special experiences at Winoki and, and seeing uh, that sort of that synergy uh, sort of begin and then endure. During those early years, Andrew, who were some of your role models and what did you learn from these people that stuck with you over the years in camping and in education and in your life? Well, I mean, there were just so many extraordinary people there. Um, Dennis spoke warmly and lovingly of um, Joe Marino, and um, I, I, you know, hardly concur. He was an extraordinary gentle Christian man, I think. John Hannum um, and his ability to, to deal with children. Um, Vince McGowan. I don't know whether McGowan Throughway is still there. I hope it is. Um, he had a sort of no-nonsense practicality about him. Um, Dennis, Dennis's wisdom and his patience. 
But the two that really stand out for me um, were John Sobel and Mike Whitley. Mm. Um, John, um, I became very good friends with him, with, and in fact, I spoke to him last week. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget my first year as a councillor, um, I had a day, a day off and a group of the Brits um, borrowed someone's car. I mean, the Americans were incredibly generous to us, actually. <laughs> um, in, in Britain, you'd never, ever lend someone your car. You'd just not done. Um, and these guys, yeah, sure, I'll take my car for a day. Wow. Abroad? <laughs> yeah, sure. So we went off to a day for a day to Canada. Um, and uh, so we went up to Montreal, which is obviously uh, de rigueur. And, um, of course, this is day way pre-mobile phones. And mm-hmm. um, I, we went to a game, I think. Um, and in the crowd, I got separated from the others. And, of course, just couldn't relocate them. And so I'm off on my own in Montreal, very limited money, because, you know, um, as a student, didn't have much anyway. And, you know, um, I just no way of reconnecting with the other people. Went back to see if I could find where the car was. Um, I think someone else had parked it up, so I didn't, wasn't sure. Anyway, eventually, I thought, well, the only one thing I can do is to phone camp. And so I phoned camp, and I got John uh, on the other end. Now, you've got to remember, I'd only been there a few weeks. Mm. So one amongst goodness knows how many employees and somebody not really come across and his first question to me was are you okay mm. and because he'd heard from the others that i'd become separated and they were sort of fishing out what to do but it was the kindness of that first question are you okay um which i've never forgotten and you know that typified the man i thought um and he sort of steered us back together and it was probably one of the more minor crises he dealt with that day you know he was a calm sort of person he taught me about the sense of priorities um he was kind to the kids. He was kind to the cats. Um, always calm. I don't know whether you remember. There was anyone, someone's house burned down. Yes. Um, right during, uh, yeah, the, right when we were waiting for father-son weekend that summer. That's right. It was right in the middle. It was a, the most frantic time when the kids were leaving camp, um, which from the administration's point of view is, is wildly busy mm-hmm. and very, very stressful. And he went straight down to the house, checked that um, Maddie and Eric were okay because uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff, I think, was a camp, camper at that time. Um, and, and Beth uh, obviously was over at Romandale. And once he'd established they were okay, he went back to his desk and he just carried on working while his husband. Mm. <laughs> so, how can you do this? He said, insurance. He said, people matter. Things don't. Mm. And, um, you know, there was that clear sense of priorities. And, you know, I've virtually every summer I've been over to the States, I've stayed with John. And, you know, just what a generous, lovely, kind, giving decent man mm-hmm. um and uh, for me a mark of a good friendship is someone that if you don't see them for a few years it's almost as if you haven't you know you never stop the conversation and he's one of those people and the other one of course is mike whitley um and again in those first first few weeks when i was lost and i was um you know not quite sure that i'm doing the right thing because i'm in a very different world you know he took me under his wing and he was just kind to me and he gave me encouragement and he said yeah you're doing a good job as you know um and it's, it's such a little thing. I mean, it really is such a little thing. But he went up to buy, what was the name of the um, Aubuchons? That was it. The, yes. Um, the hardware store. Yes. Aubuchons. Yeah, Aubuchons, that's it. And I, I'd never been out of camp. Um, and he said, well, you've, you've not seen much of the area. He said, I've got to go up to Aubuchons. Come with me. And it wasn't a particularly big deal. But um, for me, it was huge because, you know, he was just, he was the boss. He was running the uh, the waterfront, all that sort of thing. And he showed me that kindness. Um, 
you know, he ran a great program and, you know, safety was always right at the front of it, but it was never, it was never sort of po-faced. It was always, the whole thing was always fun, but it was safe at the same time. And of course, more importantly, he introduced me to Arlie Guthrie, Alice's Restaurant. <laughs> I'll never hear that song without thinking him. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, uh, do you know that song? Not, not very, very well. Just, just... Oh, okay. Well, it centers around, I won't tell you the whole story if it's too long, but, um, there's a moment where he gets, um, they get arrested in a little town in Massachusetts called Stockbridge, Stockbridge, Massachusetts. And the, the song is not kind with the, um, uh, Stockbridge's finest. Huh. Um, and, uh, they show them as being, you know, mean minded, petty and, you know, really sort of, yeah, unimaginative. Um, Anyhow, the only ever, only time I've ever been stopped by a cop in America was in the little town of Stockbridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> and I have to say, actually, the policeman was delightful. Um, in fact, he just gave up on me in the end because <laughs> uh, um, apparently I was speeding, and it was um, it was a six lane highway. And he said, "What? Why do you think I stopped you?" I said, well, "I don't know, really." And he said, "You were speeding." And I said, well, "What's the speed limit?" He said, "35." And I just looked to the road. And I said, "Constable." such a lovely road no waste <laughs> <laughs> go away go go i thought um, i thought you were going to pull that you that you were going 50 kilometers per hour and that you know and when he told me about robert frost um and of course the song that everyone who knows whitley you know you got sitting on the dock of the bread day or otis reading there's another song i got mm-hmm. you know, you know yeah i think i'm without thinking of him and you know nights around a campfire with a beer um, you know, listening to that sort of music, just chatting about life. And, you know, he's a wise, wise man. He's a kind man too. And um, he wears his wisdom lightly. Um, it's never used to batter you, but it's it's very deeply there. Mm-hmm. And his ability to make a sort of team out of a very disparate group of people. I mean, we were all waterfront guys. You know, that's what mattered. Mm-hmm. Um and it was so much better to be a waterfront guy because you were working for Whitley than it was to be anywhere on the upper fields. Mm. Um, there were good temperature reasons for that as well. But uh, um, he just made things fun. And he became a really good friend. In fact, he came over and stayed with me in England um, one Easter. Um, and we spent a week sort of going doing the sites, that sort of thing and stuff. Um, but he, he taught me a huge amount. Um, different sorts of things than John taught me different sort of way, but I learned from both of those men. But I have to say the people who taught me most while I was at camp were the kids. Hmm. Um, and especially in those early bunks, um, you know, my first couple of years, you know, cause I thought I knew about uh, dealing with children. I'd been a school prefect in quite a formal school, but none of those strategies would work. And they, I don't think they ever intended to, but I learned from them. Um, about how to deal with kids and I made an awful lot of mistakes along the way um, and those lessons have stayed with me for the rest of my professional life and they stood me in very good stead I, I learned more from the kids eight weeks in Winor- from the kids eight weeks in Winorkey than I did in a year's worth of teacher training just about how to handle kids how to deal with kids how to make things fun um, you know all of that sort of stuff they were they were great educators as far as I was concerned as well no, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it's also 
you know, I'm thinking back to your story about heading to Montreal, it's almost even more astounding given the fact that you all drive on the wrong side of the road, that the Americans are always, I watch it even to this day, they just throw the keys to the foreign staff or to the, to the, to the Brits and then just let them, let them head off and just assume that it's going to be fine. I'll tell you what, a T-junction, uh, can, can I just correct you on one thing? It's you guys that drive, drive on the incorrect side of the road. <laughs> but, um, a T-junction under those circumstances, like the top of the Mont Brunette, mm-hmm. Mont Road, is a scary experience. Yeah. Especially at night. Yeah. Is it at night? There's no lights on the uh, on the road there. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. All right, Andrew. So, as an educator, we hope that you have a leg up on the competition for our trivia segment. We have five questions for you, and uh, we'll get your final tally when all is said and done and the dust is settled. So, we have Stump the guest coming up right now. Question number one. You just mentioned him, so let's hope you can uh, parlay that into some success. What college did Mike Whitley attend? UNC. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. You are one for one. Andrew, what was the name of the ice cream shop that the campers would go to? J.B. Scoops. Woo! J.B. Scoops. J.B. Scoops is correct. I didn't know if you were going to get that one. All right. You may be a man who who's enjoyed a couple of JB scoops over the years, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? One year I went back to camp, and uh, first person I ran into was Puff, and she just looked at me and she said, oh, "You're older, you're fatter, I see." And then drove off, drove off in a golf cart. <laughs> <laughs> how 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 British of her, actually. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, two for two so far. Third question. See if you can close your eyes and picture this. During your years at Wanaki, what color was the Wanaki sign that you drove under to get into camp? I think it was buff with blue lettering. So, Dur- Stu, do you remember? I believe it was maybe green with white lettering. Yeah, it was green with white lettering back in those days. No. They later, but it has uh, for a while now. It has been, I believe, uh, it has, it's, it's now uh, blue. With, it's blue uh, with buffs. So, yeah, since lettering. since your last bit, the, the last time you were at Wanaki, it was to your you know, well, you know, to your to your credit, it was blue with buff the last time you were there. Just the wrong yeah. way so, Andrew, a little subjective here, but what was one of the most popular candies from Joe Marino's candy sale? Ah, for the kids or for me. <laughs> Either, either or. Either. Well, for me, it was Sour, sour Patch Kids, no doubt, no contest. Kids, okay. for some reason, are inexplicable to me, like the Hershey bars. Yeah. Yep. Hershey, yeah, Hershey bars, top of the list. Uh, Stu, what, what else were you thinking for the most popular ones? Oh, let's see. I mean, they had the Sweethearts, the Sugar Daddy, Sugar Babies. They had the Charleston Chews. Um, the Dad's favorite was always the Neckos. Yeah, those wafers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but we will, yeah, Sour Patch Kids is acceptable. So three out of four heading into your last in- question here. Andrew, where would the campers visit on an overnight canoe trip or sailing trip to stock up on candy and soda? What was the name of where we would go to get all that, the contraband? Early days or later days? Uh, either I had two in my head, so you're probably maybe, we'll go early or later. Okay, um, early days it was Melbourne Village and uh, then it moved to Pier 19. Yes, that is correct on both accounts. That's right. Woo! All right. Four, 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 four and a half out of five we'll give you. 
Where does that put me on the leaderboard? That puts you towards the top. Yeah, I think that I think I think that's more points than I got uh, when I when I was a color wall leader. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we're getting to that in a bit. But uh, you mentioned <laughs> this earlier, Andrew, about uh, just Winoki, the experience and uh, the bonds that were made there. Um, why do you think the Winoki counselors maybe you know formed that great bond that they did? And um, what was it about this experience of being a counselor that brings so many guys from so many different places and backgrounds into search? Uh, a good concert there every summer. I think I, I heard what James Cummings had to say on the subject, and I think he was absolutely spot on. Um, he's a wise man. Um, it was all about being in the moment, um, because of course this this time was all pre-mobile phones and that sort of stuff. Um, but you were in your own little world. I mean, Winorki was encapsulated; it was his own little bubble, um, and you were totally immersed in it. And it was really intense. And I guess camp's rhythms had evolved over decades. Um, and they were good rhythms that worked well. There was the rhythm of the week that ended with tribal war um, on, the, on the mainland. Um, and then the whole camp built up to the crescendo of color war at the end. Um, and then you had the tighter structure in the first half of camp and then slightly looser with the trips coming in the second half of, of, of camp. You know, with uh, lots of trips out of camp, that sort of stuff, and the big trips, and so so the programming of camp meant that it wasn't overly repetitive. There was always something new around the corner, mm. something you hadn't done before, and you know it was really thoughtfully put together. And so it wasn't a place where you could get bored easily, um, and you were all working towards a common goal in a very intense environment because you worked hard, and you really did work hard. Um, and but it was as much about having fun. Um, and I think, you know, Bart and John had it spot on, you know, if the counselors are enjoying themselves and the kids will too, mm. and, you know, they gave us that, um, freedom to invent and to evolve and to, um, develop things, which, which made it fun. And it, you might be tempted to say that it was a, you know, it was, it was his own little world. It wasn't the real world, but it was, you know, cause particularly for the kids, you know, it was a strong experience because, you know. If you fell out with one of your friends, you're going to be sleeping in the same bunk for the next six weeks. So mm. you have to sort it out. Um, and, you know, that someone who behaved badly, it had to be, you know, it had to be dealt with. You couldn't run away from problems. You had to face them. And that too for the counsellors, I think. Um, you know, it wasn't a job there, I don't think. It was a way of life and for eight weeks. And mm. it was such an intense, formative experience in which you learned so much and in my case, experienced so many new things um, that you sort of built teams, you built friendships, you know, the team of the bunk, the team of the group, um, the color war team, the tribal war team. And people learned to see themselves as being part of something that was greater than themselves. And that's a really important lesson in life, I think, mm. both campers and counselors. And, um, excuse me, <coughs> sorry. Um, and I think the crucible in which all of that was forged was one, you know, if you're 19, 20, 21, they're formative years of your life. Yeah. And you learn from that and you never forget those years. And, you know, you were working really closely with people that you got to know really well. And, you know, if you were lucky, you had a James Cummings who had your back or you were working under a Whitley or a John or whatever. And so you made friendships that really would stick with you for the rest of your life. Um, 
And I think it was the same for the kids, you know. And people tended to be protective of their kids. They, they liked them generally and, you know, they were supportive of them. And, you know, watching them go through the same process was was an extraordinary privilege because even if you were just, you know, or doing the bunk counsellor job for year after year, every bunk was different. You know, they had different personalities. They had different dynamics. They had mm-hmm. different tensions. Um, and, you know, I can, I think I said a moment ago, I can see people that I haven't seen for years, I mean, decades in some cases, and it's really as if we've never been apart. You know, you could just pick up the conversation where you left off. I was really lucky. The last time I was at camp, Obviously, I spent time with Whitley, who's now defected to the island, <laughs> um, and uh, to his eternal shame. Um, and I was, I was lucky because James Cummings came up, and I hadn't seen James for years—I mean, properly years—and um, it was just so nice to sort of pick up pretty much where we were left off. And it was—it was amusing in some way, because some ways, because uh, Whitley took us out on the lake, and he took us to the places that, that had been special to us because we'd taken hundreds of trips to Melbourne Village. So we went up to Melbourne Village and, you know, landed at the dock where we used to take the kids and moor all the sailboats and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Then we went out in the broads for a bit and, you know, it was just really cool. Anyway, we had a bar- barbecue at, um, uh, I think it was uh, what had been John's house. I can't remember who was living there then because it obviously wasn't John. Um, and uh, he... Um, Bart very generously said, oh, go take a, a go, he had a yacht, um, you know, his, his sailboat off the end of the dock. He said, oh, go, go take it, go have a sail. So I looked at James and said, yeah, that would be really cool. Um, and so, of course, the thing is, you forget that you're early 50s and not 19. <laughs> um, and uh, when I tried to get on the boat, I did it like I would have done if I was a 19-year-old. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've ever seen a, um, a seal floundering in a <laughs> floundering into a rock but it was something like that it was not the elegant graceful jump i would have managed when i was 19. um anyway we got on this boat and uh unhooked it and off we went it turned out the thing was full of water and the first time i turned it and turned the tiller the thing almost went over so we, we took it back very very gingerly right up to the dock and tied it up real tight <laughs> but you got to get that thing pumped out otherwise it'd be upside down in the middle of the lake but um you know you could just pick up with someone like james or you know John or Bart or Whitley or you know whoever else you see um and that's one of the you know the great privileges you just make friendships for life yeah you know I heard you mention the word probably about four times and it may be the first time that someone has evoked this sensation um in in one in, in these responses but it's very true to form it's this idea of intensity and whether or not you assign it like a negative connotation, I think that would be you know ill-advised because it was that real positive intensity, like you yeah. mentioned, like our relationships with the bunk um, and the desire to, to compete, whether it was the little the little leagues that Stu and I always talk about or the the competitions and the tribal war and the color war, the inner camps, like all those things, and just the intensity of living with people and being with them. Stu mentioned this last episode that you are just with these campers and counselors every waking hour for eight straight weeks and it's intense in a real positive um you know relationship building sense but it's a it's a beautiful way of sort of thinking about intensity uh, and only connoting it to be positive yeah well that's exactly the way i see it um i i think that you know that that intensity brings you together um and it brings the bumps together it brings the counselors together um and it's it is a very distilled experience, I think. 
Yeah, so actually this segues nicely into our next question, which is arguably the most intense five days uh, of the summer. Color War is a huge part of the Wenaki experience. Andrew, what are your, some of your favorite memories of Wenaki breakouts and Wenaki Color Wars? Well, I think I think the greatest breakout of all time was that time when we convinced the kids and most of the councillors. It was in my very early years. Or, um, I wasn't part of the management of it because I was too junior at the time. I was one of the ones with my mouth open as this whole situation uh, developed. Um, convinced the, the most of the camp we were going to war, and um, there, we had some councillors who had to leave early for whatever reason, and they got into their cars and they were inverted commas, driving for Canada because they didn't want to evade the draft and all that sort of stuff. And the kids really believed it. Um, and uh, I, I'm sure it caused some trouble in the off-season. Um, <laughs> but uh, after that, they all tamed down quite a bit. Um, there was, uh, yeah, there was one um, that isn't particularly, it, it amused me for um, for different reasons. But, um, you know, Wimbledon um, tennis tournament. Yeah. Um, one year, this German chap called Michael Steech, <laughs> and the, no one knew who Michael Steech was, um, and so that was a massive advantage. So the the break was built around uh, Michael Steech was coming to win Winorki, because no one knew who this guy was. <laughs> they just essentially filled some councillor, probably Robindel, put him in a, in a limo, dressed him up. I remember for some bizarre reason he was dressed in a fur coat when he arrived. <laughs> <laughs> really can't think why. Um, some very unfortunate water van councillors had to get the, um, you know, do you remember that old white life-saving chair at the end of the dock? Yeah, the, uh, the tower down the dock. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a solid lump of timber. Um, they had to get that up to the um, the, to the tennis courts. Oh, uh, for the chair umpire? To be, yeah, to be the umpire's chair. Anyway, um, it was in the early days of Islam, and of course Islam was way and way and way better tennis player <laughs> than this, this other guy was. And so watching Islam desperately try and lose <laughs> incompetent, um, surrounded by 400 cheering kids was something that will never, uh, will never, uh, never uh, escape me. Um, but uh, anyhow, um, you know, what else? In the, well, there was the canoe race. Um, that was always something that amused me at Colour War because that really could go anywhere. I mean, the kids could not, I mean, the Minnow Min Cup pioneer, canoe race mm. that could have melvin village pier 19 on the broads anywhere <laughs> um and didn't matter how hard you shouted at them um then then of course i guess everyone talks about around the base relay um and uh, there was there was one year i remember of course as i remember it starts with the youngest kids doesn't it, it starts with the minnows yep um and of course they've never seen a random base relay before and all they know is that they've been really pumped up by the, you know, their leaders. And they're told they've got to run really fast. And they've never seen this before. And everyone's shouting and cheering. And they're kind of confused. Um, and there was this little kid. He was the first first one off. And he was blue team, I think. And he hadn't got the memo that said you had to turn left at the first baseman. <laughs> and, uh, so this kid airs off and gets the first baseman. It just keeps running. <laughs> sort of disappears off into the woods. Um, and... <laughs> Get a fish about and start the whole thing over again. Um, and uh, I was a colour war leader um, in possibly the most disastrous uh, colour war. I went up against Kyle, um, and I think they took the uh, the clock that shows the points away after about day two because it was too dispiriting. Oh my god! Um, and uh, they almost got to the point where they brought in the scales to weigh the points rather than count them. 
Um, it, it was uh, it was a pretty disastrous blowout. It really was. Um, but I did win. Uh, um, I, I did win uh, tribal there um, as a minor claim to fame. Be uh, the leader the year before. Andy, um, if I recall, were you um, the the leader of the uh, Beavers? That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was the. Uh, but uh, I'm afraid Color War didn't play nicely with me. Uh-huh. Um, but the, I, I guess the things what sticks in your mind from Color War? Well, um, you know, the, the, it was the intensity of the competition again. Um, you know, sitting up all night making lineups for mm. the next day. You know, trying to figure out what the opposition would do and were you going to throw one thing in order to win another, um, and strategizing the whole thing. As it turns out, something I'm not not particularly good at. Um, <laughs> But the thing, thing I really enjoyed at the end was was the song fest, mm-hmm. um, and there was one year that um, I was on the buff team. Um, I think with Kyle, we, we went in um, a few points down, and we turned it around on on song fest, and it was this uh, little kid actually being quite keen on sailing, and he was um, he had the most beautiful voice. He's called David Skyst, mm. um, and they sang a tribute song to Joe Marino. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house. I mean, that kid had a perfect voice. I mean, really, really beautiful voice. Wow. Um, and there were also some pretty savage songs in there too, it has to be said. Some of them were very close <laughs> to the local. <laughs> and then what about the Pinks? Do you remember the Pinks? Yeah, the officials. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, they pulled some uh, some pranks of various sorts over the course of the years. There was one very memorable year. when Do you remember that? Uh, I think it's called Eagle Rock in the center of campus. Sure. That massive rock. Um, came out one morning that was painted pink. Um, <laughs> that didn't go down terribly well. I think there were a group of people who spent the next six days scrubbing at it with scrubbing brushes. Um, and then there was a camp down the uh, down the road, which was called Wanorki. Um, and uh, I visited actually once when I was uh, with Punak. Uh, it was a really nice camp actually. Um, and uh, every year around Colour War, they they learned when Colour War was going to be, and they hid their sign. Because as it happened, it was a pink sign, um, and always the Wanorki sign would make a, an appearance in Winorki, um, you know, sometime during Colour War, courtesy of the Pink. Uh, but yeah, they were great times, um, you know, really hard but good spirited comp- uh, competition. I think. Am I remembering a, 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 having a memory of a pink cheer? Was <clears throat> we're, we're pink, we stink, and we smell like fish, or something along those lines. <laughs> I think it was, and we don't smell like fish. Oh, we don't. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Um, some of those chairs were extraordinary. Um, you know, remembering some of those. Um, yeah, I won't get there, man. <laughs> That's great. Well, Andrew, let's get into a segment now. Uh, it is our rapid fire questions. Stu and I will go back and forth and ask you five quick, fun questions. And you've actually touched upon a few, so uh, we can kind of reiterate. Uh, some earlier thoughts or add something new. So, Stu, why don't you start us off? All right, Andrew, what was your favorite meal at camp? Well, um, can I have two? Sure. What, you're like a, you're, are you like a hobbit? You have first breakfast and second breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> Back to puff. <laughs> um, well, my favorite meal at camp, and it wasn't because camp was over, but I don't know. Um, for, for, for we Gentiles um, going to Winorki, the one thing you crave after about four weeks is bacon. <laughs> yeah. You really, really, really need bacon. 
And even if you don't generally eat it or particularly like it, you really, really want it after a first thing on a day off was always go up the road, have a bacon sandwich. Anyway, after camp finished, there was a tradition that um, the uh, very quietly around the back of the dining hall was a, um, a bacon breakfast. <coughs> Um, and that was, um, it was just back to bacon again. But of course, that was always tinged with regret that another year was was gone. Um, but I guess my total favourite would be um, on some of the overnight trips that I took. Um, camp used to get, I've never, you can't see that, I've never found them in Britain, but these things called flank steaks, mm. just enormous pieces of meat. Um, and you make an open fire. Um, and you put them in a great grating, and you cook these flank steaks over a um, over an open fire, and um, you know slice them thinly, eat them between bread. They were fantastic. And I remember I always make sure I get some steak rub when I was uh, you know going wherever the kids were getting their candy and, and mm. shoot on from your area of the woods. I think uh, Steve um, were yeah those you know sitting around the campfire with the kids, steak sandwiches. Didn't get much better than that. Well, yeah. I like to sort of imagine like 35 years later, you're having like a Proustian or Pavlovian response to bacon when you, you just start crying when you eat it because you're sad that camp is over. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, all right. Second question. What was your favorite boat at Wenaki over your years there? Uh, sorry, I'm going to pull the two one again. Um, Boston Whaler. That little Boston Whaler was extraordinary. I mean, that camp, that, that, same Boston Whaler is there now as was there before I arrived. You know, that thing is so strong. When you look at the abuse it's taken <laughs> from various incompetent drivers over the years, that boat, I don't know what it's built out of rocks and cathedrals and stuff. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's strong. Um, I believe they got uh, both the mainland and the island one in like 1979 or 80. Jeez. Yeah, and, and you're right. I mean, just just from the waves and the docks and and the people and the, the that have driven it, that is still there, durable. I don't think the lower units of the of the engines were quite so durable, however. No, no, there was a few rock hunters in the engines, but just one boat. Oh wait, hold on. Uh, second second boat coming in still. Oh, uh, it has to be the Pearson. Mm. Loved sailing that thing. All right, Stu. So, um, what was your favorite view at Wenaki? Well, I touched on the one from the rock. Um, right. Just you know, if you push through the bushes at the bottom of um, uh, bottom of Junior Ray, um, you know that's really special, especially when the sun's going down because you feel slightly cut off from camp. You know, the the noises are in the bank because camp's a noisy place, obviously. Um, but they're in the background, and you've just got the piece of the lake in front of you. But my favourite view on the lake as a whole is um, if you say, sail down towards the broads um, and you go through the Barber's Pole where it gets really narrow between two islands and suddenly the, 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 size, the sheer size of the lake sort of opens out in front of you and you realise that, you know, a lot of people just spend most of their time up in the Winorki area and they don't, you know, really appreciate how big the lake is when you get down onto the broads. Um, right. But when you go through the Barber's Pole and it just opens up and you can see just the size of the lakes, the mountains behind, you know, it's just stunning. Yeah, yeah. it is. And I think uh, to the right is Cow's Island. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, 
yeah, I've got so many happy memories of that, you know, sailing down there, motoring down there. It's beautiful. Yeah. Now you mentioned a couple, uh, so maybe this, that one of those will be the answer to this, but maybe there'll be another one. Uh, what song, Andrew, always reminds you of Winocchi when you hear it? Um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, funnily enough. Hmm. Um, it was, I think, a Songfest song in my first year. Mm -hmm. um, and it was somewhere down in New Hampshire. You know, you can probably see how it worked. Um, and then, of course, there was the one that Gil Dunn used in his Color War, Do You Hear the People Sing? That was, that was, that was spectacular. Oh, yeah. Yeah, really spectacular. Um, rewrote it a few years later for, um, for JC. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a cracking, that was a winner. That was a Songfest winner right there. Okay. Um, besides the Around the Base Relay, which you mentioned, um, what was your favorite Color War event? Um, I think it, it would have to be the Mass Softball Games. Mm -hmm. um, okay. I had no idea what was going on. Because um, <laughs> if, if you play cricket correctly, um, you don't stand around in a circle. Um, and <laughs> all I knew is it was terribly exciting and we were either winning or losing. Um, and sometimes they had this thing where bases were loaded and then it got really loud. Um, <laughs> and there'd been an awful lot of cheering and then sudden silence and then a bit of pitching and then a, the sort of whack noise and uh, <laughs> either groans or, or cheers, depending on what happened after that. Um, but I, I probably had no idea how this thing worked. <laughs> um, but all I knew was it was really exciting. And I just fed off the excitement of the kids. Um, that was, that was that, you know, that was really good. But for just sheer yeah. amusement value, it had to be the canoe race. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the war canoe. I imagine uh, the mass softball job was probably pitching. Oh, yeah, always. Yeah. 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 And Bar um, yeah, Bart would be cheering, the ducks are on the pond if the bases were loaded, I imagine, as well. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember, do you remember the, um, they used to have a, a councillor softball game in, uh, uh, you know, right, getting up. Fourth of July? Okay, no. It was it was before camp started. It was supposed oh, to be okay. to integrate us. Um, <laughs> you put put someone who's physically incompetent like myself who can't catch a ball to play softball. This isn't going to end well. <laughs> and each side had a two Brit rule. Each each side had to have at least two Brits on it as a handicap. <laughs> <laughs> and if I remember correctly, a lot of times the Brits wouldn't use a glove. They would just. That's what I was going to say. That's right. They'd always try to catch it barehanded. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> with mixed results. Exactly. So final question in our rapid fire. It's our traditional final question. Um, we may know the answer based off of some color war experiences. What is your favorite Wanaki color, Andrew? Buff or blue? Oh, buff. Yeah. I figured, yeah. I, figured that was, I figured that was coming. It's what tough to rhyme in a song first, though, because, you know, once you've been through tough, rough, and stuff, you, you'll <laughs> you stop. This is true. This is true. obviously there on the mainland in the late 80s. We associate you with the waterfront and specifically sailing. What are some of the lasting memories about these things that would argue that you have? Well, the one that's, uh, I've touched on it already, was those sailing trips, those overnight sailing trips. Um, we take the three yachts. Um, you have the two Pearsons, and then you have this thing called the Brick, which was named for its uh, upwind sailing abilities. Um, and we'd sail we'd take those things on a, a two two day sailing trip um and it was so cool because you know i came up with the idea and john said yeah do it if you want and um 
you know, he trusted me and he let me have the opportunity to do it, to do it. And it was a real success. And, you know, the kids loved it. I loved it even more than they did, I think. And we'd sail down the broads across to Wolfborough. Um, I don't know whether you know Wolfborough, but it's a, um, a sort of 1920s sort of, it's a bit of a tourist sort of town, but it's like a step back to mm. actually not 1920s, 1950s America. Mm. Um, and uh, they would sail across there. It was a good sailing experience for the kids. You know, you got some proper sailing in. It could be quite, quite lively at times, actually. Um, and obligatory candy store. Um, <laughs> and then back to, um, and we used to go to this camp called Camp Lawrence on the back end of, I think it's Ragged Island. I can't remember. Yes. Um, and we would um, we'd camp up there. Um, and there was no dock or anything. So you had to anchor the boats off. Um, and that was quite tricky because the mail boat that went by at sort of six in the morning threw up the most enormous wash and if you didn't get it right you'd smash things to pieces um and some of the kids would sleep on boats some of the kids would sleep um there was no sort of shack or anything there they just sleep under the stars um and you know the flank stakes that i've spoken of um and it was a really special experience you sit around the fire and you chat you talk and i generally tell a slightly traumatizing story of one sort or another um and uh kids would go off to bed and the councillors would sit around and you know it's just a really lovely experience and you know if you're doing it, doing it with someone of the uh, quality and wisdom and intelligence of Cummings you're always going to have an interesting conversation <laughs> it doesn't matter what it is really um and uh, then the next day we get up and we go across to Weir's Beach which is a totally different sort of experience it's sort of 1960s America mm. um you know boardwalk um Weir's Beach water slides um fried dough um i don't think that was on the, <laughs> i don't think that's on the anything just recommend risk yeah, that's not in, that's not in the new that's not in the pyramid andrew in the nutritional <laughs> no, thing, i don't yeah. think it is <laughs> um, well, Ma maslow's or the food pyramid <laughs> yeah um, either or and yeah so um they buy their t-shirts and then you hop on your boots and you set back, uh, sail back to camp, camp that afternoon and it was just a magical experience you know because the kids were working together as a team you know um you can't sail one of those boats on your own. You need at least two people to do it. And they learned, you know, tight teamwork because what they did mattered because if they got it wrong, then the boat was going to be in trouble. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a really good life lesson for them. And it was just a magical experience. You know, you got to know the other people on your boat really well. Mm. It, was, it, was, it was really cool. Um, <laughs> I remember one time it was, uh, uh, we were at the middle of the broads and we were totally becalmed. The wind had gone totally. And so we were just having to motor it. It was, it was really grim and uh, the kids were getting bored. And uh, I bought a, little, a couple of little radios so I could talk to the other boat. And that was a year when I didn't have a counsellor of the quality of someone like James Cummings. This, uh, you know, James was just fantastic, um, sensible and all that sort of stuff. But this guy wasn't, wasn't, wasn't <laughs> quite as good. And uh, he said, my kid's getting really bored. How can we, you know, what, what should I do? And I said, we well, do a man overboard drill. Um, <laughs> and what I meant by man overboard drill is you throw... A, a life jacket over the back end and you teach the kids how to circle around taking into account the wind and the drift to go and pick the thing up um and it gets them all involved gets them doing stuff and that's cool okay that's what i meant by man overboard <laughs> what he meant by man overboard was to throw a kid over the side <laughs> and i looked up and there was this kid thrashing in the water I mean, oh dear no. um so yes the, your colleagues varied in quality as to be said um but yeah, that was my most, uh, that, that was my happiest set of memories. Not the man overboard, the uh, yeah. uh, 
the, the, that trip, I think. Then there was the night that the... Do you, do you remember the night the speedboat was wrecked? Is, um, is that, does that when it, did it crash into one of the boats or was it a different night? No, no, no. It was, um, it was uh, someone had gone up, obviously, for a party night out somewhere. Not, not one of ours, nothing to do with camp at all. On the other side of the island? Yeah, it was on the, yeah. you know, you know the kids camp, the wilderness at the back? Yep. Yes. Um, this guy, it was a, a filthy night. It was a, there was a bit of a storm on and he came herring down the lake. And if you can believe this, he didn't see the island. Oh. And he just, he, he full throttle, he must have been drunk as a skunk, um, absolute full throttle into the wilderness. Now there is shallow rocks just off that. Yeah. It, threw, it took the boat sort of like going off a ski ramp. Um, you know, you've seen that bit with J.D. Hogg with, uh, in James Bond with J.D. Hogg, <laughs> uh, the fly, flying, the boat flies over the top of the island. Yeah. Well, it didn't quite manage that because it hit a tree about six feet into the island and then fell back and was actually solidly on the ground at 90 okay. degrees to its original direction of travel. So he must have been going. And he, uh, amazingly, he was so drunk that um, he, he didn't try and tense himself and he, he emerged completely unscathed. Wow. Um, and so we heard that we heard the crash in the night um, and someone phoned the police and uh, they said that a boat had been wrecked. And I went around the next morning and found the boat. Um, yeah, absolutely extraordinary. So, yeah, there are all sorts of memories from that lake. Wow. Well, you know, you just mentioned a couple of the kind of the, the, le- the stories with a little bit of levity. Um, any other just really kind of fun stories come to mind when you think about your time uh, and with some of the characters with whom we worked uh, and you worked during that time period? Yeah, um, I mean, there, there were some really big characters there, really funny people. Um, you know, just the one-liners were were priceless. I'll never forget, we had this um, traveling musician come around and he did a concert. Um, Essentially, he was just a sort of guitarist and a singer. Um, And he arrived, and I can't remember who introduced him. Could have been Kyle, it's sort of thing Kyle would have done. He stood up there, he said, "Uh, well, I'd like to introduce John. Sorry, this is John from Peter, Paul and Mary. (laughs) (laughs) It's all dutifully clapped. Absolutely wetted with them. Anything involving a golf cart was generally fun at night. Yeah. Um, I think they were very wise not to have electric ones because uh, the noise those things made starting up were a deterrent in themselves. Um, then there were all those things that went on at the the, um, the um, fire circle. You know, <laughs> got wild sometimes in the in the late eighties. Um, <laughs> I remember an eagle mating dance, um, and Bart's telling this story about two eagles that mate and have little chicks. And uh, and he started up, he said, oh, I can hear in the distance the cry of the lonely male eagle <laughs> from out in the bushes somewhere. I don't know, could have been Mike Cates or all those. Horny! Horny! And you can see Bart's face. He's trying to keep a straight face while he continues his story. Kids are all mouth, mouth open. Um, and his and the female answers him. <laughs> from inside the fire circle, he goes, E2, E2. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just, it just, it just went on from there. But just priceless moments like that. It was, uh, you know, there was some um, very funny people who said and did very funny things. Oh, that's, that's, you know, it's funny. I have not thought about that <clears throat> in, you know, 34 years since that happened. Uh, I am, I have like perfect recollection of that exact story with Bart doing that. It's amazing. It's amazing. One other thing I didn't say was um, one of my really happy memories were, um, and it 
it's not just because it's you that's doing this, uh, but it, you know, it's it, it's absolutely genuine. It's and it really stays with me. Um, and I talk about it to the kids that I teach sometimes. Um, it was we had this single father son weekend after the end of camp, mm. um, and um, Wiley, um, your brother, um, was quite keen on sailing. Your dad came up, and. Uh, he wanted to go sailing one afternoon, so we took one of the Pearsons, and um, I don't know if you were there, Judge, you would have been very little when this started, I think, um, yeah. but it was certainly Wiley, your dad and I, um, and we went out sailing, and it was just lovely, um, you know, because your dad, dad's a delightful man, very wise man, and I really enjoyed his company, and it became a sort of yearly thing that we did, um, and I remember, I, you know, we were just chatting about this and that, and um, I asked him about what he did, and he told me he was working on the human genome. That was, I think, when they were um, yeah. uh, decoding it early on. And, we, you know, it was fascinating to talk to someone who's such an expert in their field about something you know very little of. And he's, he's, I remember he said, oh, it's going to take decades to do this, you know, way beyond my time. It's a huge, huge problem. And then, as I say, that sailing trip almost became a thing for the father-son some weekends. And... Um, he came back the next year. I said, well, how's it going with the human genome? He said, well, we've, we've done it. You said, said it could take years. And he said, yeah, there's this thing where you can connect computers around the world. Um, and so you could have different teams in different parts of the world working on the same problem. And of course, it was, I guess, the very beginnings of the internet. Um, yeah. And, you know, when the kids that I teach, when I'm trying to illustrate how much things have changed mm. uh, over my lifetime, it's that story that I tell them. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's almost it's no sad to think, you know, you're, that it was about decoding the human genome uh, 30 years ago. And now we're looking at, you know, sharing cat videos as the utilitarian <laughs> use of the internet. Better use of it than we have. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, Andrew, <clears throat> this is the time uh, on our show where we'd like to read some recollections of former campers and former counselors, administrators uh, who had some thoughts about you. So we'll read uh, four that we have today, and I'll start with the first one. <clears throat> Andrew Barrow was a dude. Now, let's be clear. It was not in a mixed martial arts kind of way, and it certainly was not in a basketball or lacrosse or soccer or, hell, anything north of the dining hall kind of way. Nope. Andrew was a dude because he knew himself, and as a result, he knew others. He understood how he fits into the world. He came comfortable in his own skin. He was unapologetic in his British ways. He was even one of those rare English blokes that was actually as smart as he thought he was. But I digress. I first met Andrew in 1992. I was a young sailing counselor, far from home, with a bunk full of misfit toys, trying to find my way. For the first time in life, I was responsible for people other than myself, and I didn't have a clue how that needed to look. I needed a mentor. I needed someone to show me the ropes. Enter Andrew Barrow. He taught me how to run a bunk. He taught me how to teach sailing. He taught me how to lead an overnight sailing trip. He taught me how to speak in public. He taught me how to get kids to listen. He taught me how to get kids to be quiet. He taught me how to get kids to be quiet so they would listen. His advice to young counselors that were smart enough to listen was priceless, timeless, and always, always delivered with a touch of that dry English wit. 
The highlight of my memories with Andrew were the overnight sailing trips across the broads, cooking steaks, telling ghost stories, and drinking beers after the kid had long since gone to bed. We laughed, we pondered, but mostly we were just present, happy to be outside, under the stars, a million miles from civilization with a bunch of kids from New York. Somewhere across the pond, I'm certain that Andrew is still doing what he does best, which is helping young kids find their voice in this world. I'm sure he is also doing it in his kind, patient, slightly sarcastic, polite British manner. I hope they listen to what he has to say. I'm glad I did 30 years ago, because Andrew Barrow was a dude. This recollection was written by a pretty awesome dude in his own right, former Wenaki counselor from 1992 to 1997, and former Wenaki parent, James J.C. Jimbo Cummings. That's so kind, James. Thank you very much. Um, it was a privilege to work with you, actually. You know, as his interview uh, showed a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. he's a wise, intelligent, thoughtful person. Um, and I think his kids are lucky to have him as, as, as their dad. Yeah, here, here. Thank you, James. Okay, Andrew. Uh, second one. <clears throat> it is my privilege to reflect upon my relationship with Andrew Barrow. Andrew first started working in Camp Wanaki about 35 years ago. His roles and responsibilities at the camp were numerous and varied. He organized and ran the best sailing program in my years at camp. His leadership roles evolved from bunk counselor to group leader to being one of the role leaders. When he no longer could spend the entire summers at camp due to his teaching position in England, as well as his administrative position at BUNAC, Andrew would return for a portion of each summer. He coordinated the accreditation visits with the American Camping Association. Even more important, Andrew and I worked very closely together in dealing with situations and issues, some were delicate, others complicated, with both campers, staff members, and parents. Andrew was a master in helping to resolve these matters. On a personal note, I still consider Andrew to be one of my most loyal and trusted friends in my life. He has been a wonderful role model for thousands of Wanaki campers. It has been a privilege to have been his colleague and trusted friend. Hold the fort. This recollection was written by the seven-time winner of Vermont's Most Loved Citizen and former Monarchy director, John Sobel. Wow, thank you. Um, don't want to say really. I mean, John. John's a, a, a real friend. Um, always has been, actually. And I've valued my relationship with him over the years more than I can say. He's taught me a huge amount. And... It's just lovely to have someone that, you know, is there for you. And if you pick up the phone, as we did last week, actually, um, the, I didn't know he was going to write that. Well, I didn't know he was going to write anything, actually. Um, he, it was, it was like the time, time just evaporated and that's proper friendship. Mm. Thank you. <clears throat> Here's the third one. Andrew Barrow is synonymous with what Camp Wanaki was all about in the eighties and nineties. This idyllic site on Lake Winnipesaukee became part of our family when we sent our older son off to New Hampshire in 1985. Although visiting day, my first glimpse of the camp, is permanently etched in my brain, it was the rebirth of the father-son weekend that was the highlight of my next few summers. It was then that I really got to know the young men with whom my son spent his summers at camp, and notably Andy, who was the sailing counselor in 1987. Of course, the camp activities shared between fathers and sons were amazing, but the fathers against the counselors softball game stood out as one of the finest times. 
The differences between cricket and softball were never more obvious. But what was great was the team spirit shown by the American counselors in encouraging their British compatriots when they were up to bat. Andrew was especially adept at the underhand swing, so he could actually hit the low pitch. Because we fathers ended up spending a couple nights up at camp, we actually got to spend quality time with the counselors and really got to know them. Andrew was one of those guys who was equally at home with a 12-year-old and a 39-year-old. You immediately sensed the sheer joy that he got from his relationship with the boys, and it was also clear how much they admired him. Amongst my son's fondest memories were the time he spent on Lake Winnipesaukee learning how to sail with Andrew. I saw Andrew for the next several Winnipesaukee summers when both my sons were there, and he and I actually corresponded a bit after he left. Always a gentleman and a scholar, Andrew Barrow represents all that is great about Camp Winnipesaukee. This recollection was written by the only father to attend every father-son weekend from 1985 to 1993, and the only father to still attend visiting day to visit his son, who's a 44-year-old counselor, Dr. Rodney Rothstein. Oh, thank you. That's so kind. My memories of those sailing trips are, are really warm. You know, just thoughtful, interesting, intelligent conversation with really nice, decent people. Mm -hmm. And one of the thing, one of the things, you know, I've spent the rest of my life in education, and it's really lovely when you see good parents get the children that they deserve. Mm. And your dad did. Oh, cool. Thanks so much. Very well put. All right, Andrew, the, the fourth one here. It's hard to put into words how special a love a person Andrew is. While he was an invaluable part of the Wenaki family for so long and continues to be a wonderful friend to our family, he also played a very important role in my life and in shaping who I am today. Approximately 30 years ago, I had my first opportunity to be a counselor at Wenaki. At the ripe old age of 17 or 18, I was put into a bunk with Andrew as my co-counselor. At the time, I was still living the life of the eternal camper, and I was completely unprepared for the responsibilities that lay ahead of being a counselor. I have no doubt that it must have felt for Andrew that he had one more, slightly larger camper in the buck to look after. Nevertheless, Andrew took me under his wing and guided me through the summer, keeping me out of trouble, for the most part, and teaching me quite a bit along the way about be beginning to become a responsible adult. Yet what resonated most with me about Andrew at the time was his loyalty, patience, and understated grace that he displayed day in and day out. This left an indelible impression on me. Andrew is a true class act, and I and the entire Wanaki family were so fortunate to have had him as part of our lives for so many summers. This recollection was written by 15 summer Wanaki camper and all-around great guy, Jeff Sobel. Oh, Jeff, that's so kind. Thank you. Um, I remember that summer, too. It was a great summer, and you wanted to play yourself. You were good with the kids because Jeff, Jeff, Jeff was always such a kind-hearted as a kid, you know, I remember him when he was uh, a kid in the early days. Um, in fact, he was one of the very first campers I ever met when I first arrived. And um, what stood out about him was he was good hearted and he was kindly. And that's why when I had the opportunity to have him as my co-counselor, it was something that I jumped up and, you know, um, he, did, he did he did a good job. and. 
yeah, a really decent man. And it's uh, I see him on Facebook every so often. He's, he seems to never be in <laughs> one place for, <laughs> between posts and posts. Seems to move all, all the way around the world. He must, he's having a very interesting life by the looks of him. Yeah. Thank you, Jack. So, Andrew, it's been inherent in, in most of what you've said uh, today, a beautiful through line through a lot of your commentary and recollections. But I'll still end with the final question asking you point blank. What has the Wenaki community and your relationships with former campers and counselors and parents meant to you over all of these years? Well, quite simply, Wenaki set the direction of my life. Um, it taught me what I was good at, or not particularly, but reasonably, um, and what I really was not good at, colour war. <laughs> um, and uh, it taught me that I really like working with kids and that I really got a kick out of seeing them grow and watching them learn. And so it was that that led me into being a teacher. Um, you know, really as simple as that. And the lessons that Winorki taught me and that the campers taught me and those role models that I was lucky enough to work with taught me have been lessons that have stayed with me for the rest of my life um, and the certainly all of my professional life. And they've stood me in very good stead. Um, as I said earlier, I learned more in eight weeks um, about how to handle um, children and adolescents than I did in a year at the University of Cambridge mm -hmm. um, in my uh, uh, PGCE. Um, and it's, gave, it's given me really happy memories. Um, and the kids that I teach know that if they, if they, if they want to get me off, off topic, <laughs> um, the easy way to do it is, uh, so did you, did you work at the summer camp? <laughs> That's always a guaranteed way to turn ourselves away from the intricacies of Plato <laughs> into something rather more palatable. And, uh, you know, they're fascinated by it. And, and some of them have gone on to work at camps actually. Um, and, uh, yeah. Winorki has, has given me more than I could ever hope to repay. Well, thank you, Andrew. Uh, Studog, I'll, I'll turn it to you for some final thoughts. Well, thank you, Andrew, for coming on. Uh, our first Across the Pond guest here on the podcast. And um, from a kid, I believe in 1988 at Kent Wildwood at a swim meet, and you came up to me and said, hey, I need you to do the backstroke. And my first <laughs> recollection to you, or my response to you was, yeah, I don't want to do that. And about a minute later, you not only had me convinced, but um, and why I needed to do that, and and for the camp and what have you. Um, thank you for all your your years and um, just being the wonderful counselor um, that you were for us. Oh, thank you. And can I say to you guys, um, I've listened to all of the podcasts that you've put out. Um, you know, of the people that I've known over the years. And it's brought back such happy memories and it's really brought those years back to life for me. And I'm sure that if it's done it for me, then it, that it's done it for countless others. And so thank you for what you're doing with this as well. Oh, for sure, Andrew. And look, I think happy memories is the best sort of final words uh, for us as we as we sign off of this episode. Uh, you had a real lasting impact on both my family, but also scores of campers uh, over the years. And when your name comes up in conversation with other counselors, uh, with my own family, everyone seems to have such wonderful uh, reflections and memories of their time with you and just the sort of the joy uh, in carefree nature and, and, and wit and, and as I mentioned, the erudition that you brought uh, to us as, as, as young kids 
really stuck with us. And for that, we thank you for being such a great part of the Wanaki family. And it was just wonderful catching up with you. Thank you. So, Studog, we'll sign off with our theme. So, hold the fort, for we are coming, loyal sons of Wenaki. Side by side, we battle onward, on to victory. In the words of former Wenaki camp doctor, Dr. Dre, until the next episode, IP, MP, C-dubs, and hold the fort. Thank you.